Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Today's scripture reading is in the second book of Acts. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Before Mark gets up here, we just want to take a minute and talk about our third way creed. We've been going through this series on the third way, and we have put on paper some things, some kind of bullet points about our community that we think embody this third way posture. This is not like you have to believe this. That would be very anti-third way of us. So I'm going to read it. You're welcome to read it with me if this is something you want to like pray over yourself or speak over yourself. Or if you're hearing it for the first time, just let it sink in and reflect and notice, notice what comes up for you. We choose to value empathy and compassion over certainty and absolute agreement. We commit to uphold the God-given dignity and intrinsic value of all humanity, regardless of others' convictions or beliefs. We will find the courage to challenge all forms of communication that foster disdain, violence, and contempt. With a healthy awareness of our own bias, we vow to form our beliefs in the counsel of Scripture, a dependence upon the Holy Spirit, and most importantly, in following the way of Christ. We vow to pursue clarity around our own convictions while respecting others who faithfully disagree. We commit to extend compassion where there is suffering, curiosity where there is difference, and belonging where there is isolation. Good morning, church family. Happy Mother's Day once again. We are in this Third Way series, and I've been really looking forward to this sermon because it's really, really different from what we typically do with one another. What I'd like to do in this sermon is to do a survey on the book of Acts. We're going to look at the experience of the early church, and my goal with doing that is, is just, I want to prove one point, and it's this, that our Third Way posture that we've been talking about isn't some new invention. It's not something that we're trying to be creative with. But in fact, when I look at the early church experience, it's actually depicted in what they did and what God was doing in their midst. And so I hope that we make that clear. Uh, that for me, I believe returning to this early expression of being church is what we find in the very, very beginning of the Jesus followers that they had in this world. So a little background. The book of Acts, for those who aren't familiar with Scripture, comes at the very end of the four different Gospels. The same person who wrote the Gospel of Luke wrote the book of Acts. And some people call it the Acts of the Apostles. Other people call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. So Luke, he wrote his Gospel. It ends with the resurrected Jesus appearing to his disciples. And Jesus is there to tell them the story isn't over. Regardless what you think, the story's not over. It's just the beginning. And the way in which the, the book of Luke begins is with what we call the ascension. 
Jesus gathered his disciples together, and as he was blessing his disciples, he ascended into heaven. I love the idea of that as Jesus was blessing. It's almost like Jesus might still be blessing us, his followers, even now. And so the followers of Jesus, they see Jesus ascend, and then they collectively go, now what? What are we supposed to do now? And that's where the book of Acts begins. What would you do after Jesus blesses you and says, good luck, your job now is to take everything I've done and move it forward and see ya. Like it would be kind of a daunting uh, feeling to have that. But then the disciples remembered an instruction that Jesus gave them. And this is what Jesus told them. Jesus said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that's how the book of Acts begins. So they waited together in Jerusalem, and in their waiting, imagine what they were to do there together. They would probably be trying to mentally piece things together, like what is going to happen now? What, was, what took place? Do you guys remember what Jesus said? And one of the things that they remembered was a promise from Jesus. Uh, and they, this is declared in, 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 in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. When Jesus said to them, they remembered this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, which is like that region, in Samaria, which is the part of the area that you don't want to go to. Those are like your emotional and religious enemies. And then to the ends of the earth. So they remembered that. that Jesus said, I'm going to give you power. And that power is to equip you to be able to bear witness to me and my kingdom. So, in fact, the story wasn't over. It was about to begin. A huge adventure was about to take place. They would be called to go to the ends of the earth to bear witness to Jesus. But they weren't going to be called to do it alone. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So these fathers of Jesus, they waited and they waited. And it came time for a festival called Pentecost. It was a big deal for that community because Pentecost really celebrated two different things. One, it was the time for the barley harvest. And so, the, you know, agrarian economy, they would wait for the barley harvest to take place and they would bring their first fruits to Jerusalem as like, as a sacrifice to God, expressing gratitude. And people would be, also be grateful because the crops came in, which means they have money and provision. The second thing the Pentecost celebrates is it re reminds the community of something significant that happened to the people. It reminds, it's, it's, a, it's a day, it's a holiday to remind them of when Moses came down from the Mount of God with the Ten Commandments. And so they celebrate on this day a huge change in the relationship that God had with God's people because on that day, the law was given to the people and they knew how to be in right relationship with God now. They had the law, the Ten Commandments. And so here on Pentecost, the Jewish people from all over the Middle East would gather from all different nations and languages. They'd all gather in Jerusalem, and this town would swell in population from all these different nationalities and ethnic groups, but they would all be there to celebrate Pentecost together. And it is when that took place, when this huge gathering in the city was all there, that the Holy Spirit 
decided to fall upon these disciples who were waiting. In the same holiday where they celebrated how God gave them the law, now they would remember this day as the day in which God gave them the Holy Spirit. How they were empowered by God's presence. How fear was replaced with boldness. How all of their inadequacies was replaced with power. And when this took place, when this moment took place, when the Holy Spirit fell upon them, it, it was such a commotion that it became a spectacle. And all these people who were around started gathering around where this took place. And, and the crazy thing that happened is that all these people from different nations and ethnic groups, they began to hear people speaking in their own language. How the Holy Spirit empowered them to speak. And so people from all different nations began to hear all these Jewish people speaking in their tongues and their dialects. And it was like the first thing the Holy Spirit wanted to do was to break down the barriers between God's people. And right from the beginning, the Holy Spirit did what God had promised through Jesus. They would be empowered to bear witness to the whole world. And that happened immediately. And on that day, thousands of these people's uh, thousands of these people decided to be a follower of Jesus. So it went from these handful of followers to a thousand, thousands of people, and they decided to stay in Jerusalem to learn what this all meant. They just said, hey, let's just stay here in Jerusalem and figure out what is this way of Jesus all about? Can you imagine what that would have been like to be a part of that community? a community of different nationalities and languages and cultures, they all are coming together and to try to figure out what does this mean? I mean, I wonder what they did. Well, in the scripture reading that Jim just read, we heard what they did. That's a description of how the church was born. And what do we find in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47? These are the practices of that early church, the very beginning the nucleus of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what took place. And I want you to notice the practices that jumps out. That they devoted themselves to what? To learning from the apostles, to the apostles' teaching. They ate together. They prayed together. They had signs and wonders performed in their midst. That they shared things in common. They had this radical sense of community with one another. They began to sell their property in case someone had need, they continued to meet together. They were like devoted to meet together with one another, and they praised God. They enjoyed the favor of all people. Doesn't that describe the, the church today? Like we're just, I don't, nothing belongs to me. Nothing, it is all ours, right? Sounds a little bit communistic, right? Right? And then also this idea of meeting together, being devoted to that. And then also what we find in our culture, that Christians enjoy the favor of all people. All people just have a high regard for Christians, right? That's still the case today, right? And because of that, because of this nucleus, this experience of the early church, a byproduct took place. And what is that? At the very end of this passage, we find the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. This is how the church was born. In the midst of their diversity, in the midst of their differences, that the church was formed around this, around putting the way of Jesus in the center of all of their differences and for them to practice out 
what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Now, that took place for a season, but then people began to return back to their homelands. They did so maybe because it was time to go back home, but also persecution started breaking out. Because anytime there's a movement that's like this subversive movement, the people in power will try to stomp it down. And so that's what took place. Persecution broke out, and people began to scatter. But when they scattered, they did so with these practices that they had learned while in Jerusalem, with the teachings that they had heard, with maybe a couple friends who were there and they experienced it too and they're going back to the same town and so maybe they're going home with them a little bit of a community. And it's amazing that in that, maybe even the persecutions, that's how the church began to spread. And these little bitty Jesus-believing communities uh, began to flourish in different parts of that region and that world. And Jesus transformed this Jesus-believing uh, Jewish movement to a multi-ethnic Christ movement happening in the world. And against all odds, this movement began to spread through every barrier, through barriers of language, ethnicity, race, social class, gender bias. The kingdom of God was this submersive, subversive movement established on these handful of practices. And what I find fascinating and if I'm going to be honest, a little bit unsettling about this all is this all took place without what? What was not present then? What's that? The New Testament. The Bible as we know it. Like, that's not there. It's not there yet. And yet somehow this radical movement is taking place. The initial Jesus movement was way before anything was canonized, way before anything was like stamped with the approval of like this is holy scripture. It's believed that maybe after the first 200 years after Jesus, there is the beginning of some, uh, like a canon for the New Testament by the time of, uh, time of a man named St. Arrhenius. Uh, he was mid to late hundreds. That Around then is when that canon first started getting solidified. But before that, there was letters going around depictions of what happened with Jesus. Uh, but this initial Jesus movement took place without the New Testament. They also didn't have a lot of infrastructure. Megachurches probably wasn't a thing by then. Instagram, all that stuff. I mean, it was just this organic movement that was taking place. But what did they have? Well, they had stories of Jesus, and it was captivating. They had this little bit, little small communities that formed where people had a sense of drastic belonging and this incredible sense of community despite their backgrounds and differences. They had specific practices around teaching, around sacrificial love, caring for the most vulnerable. And they also had good news that Jesus was king. But most importantly, what do they have they had the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes, the early church, they would be trying to figure out what does it mean to be the church because, guys, remember that this was not like when Jesus came. He's like, I'm starting a new religion. It's called Christianity. Instead, they really believed that it was the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. And so it was really disorienting for the early church because the main question was, how Jewish does one must be to be Christian? 
And so the early church was grappling with that. And oftentimes they would have a framework of, all right, if someone wants to be in the fold, then they would have to do this, have this certain practice, be circumcised, not eat this, respect these certain days, and then they could be in the fold and they would get together. They have these councils of men together. They would decide these things. They're like, all right, this is the framework. You can't belong until this happens. And then all of a sudden, someone would pipe up and go, actually, guys, uh, the Holy Spirit already baptized those people and the Holy Spirit already gifted them. So I think maybe God had other plans than like those limits that we created. And they'd be like, oh, Holy Spirit, quit it. We were like, just agreed on it. We just passed our bylaws. But the Holy Spirit was like this divine instigator who went around disrupting and disorienting these norms and expectations, these customs, especially religious norms that cut people out. The Holy Spirit would fall on the wrong people. He would draw people together that would have no reason to be together. He would empower and gift the least likely person. For me, in literature terms, the Holy Spirit was this catalytic character. A catalytic character is someone in the story that moves the plot forwards and usually instigates drama and conflict, and it forces those people, forces characters into action. If you're around a catalytic character, you can't be uh, stagnant and still because you'll be kicked up, you'll be disoriented. My vision of the Holy Spirit is like Kramer, who blows into the room and disrupts everything that was going on. Things were calm, and then, you know, he pops in. Yes, I just liken the Holy Spirit to Kramer, but you get the point. Or maybe on a day like today, Holy Spirit is like a really intense mother who was birthing the church, who was nurturing it, who was feeding it. Sometimes this Holy Spirit maternal love was a bit ominous, a bit commanding. It would push people into places they didn't want to go. The Holy Spirit would teach and move the church into this world, baptizing people, filling people, equipping people, directing people, in spite all odds. And the crazy thing, church historians, or even just historians in general, without the, the banner of being Christian, this faith that began in around 40 AD with around 3,000 people grew to an estimated six million people in only a few hundred years. And they did so without having power in, in worldly terms. They were never the dominating force in this world. It was subversive. They were vulnerable. But because they had centered their shared life in Jesus and they had this courageous faith in following the way of Jesus, the gospel began to spread in the kingdom that Jesus was here initiating took over. So may I vocalize maybe the question that some of you are thinking, which is, whatever happened to the Holy Spirit? Whatever took place with that? I mean, should we expect and anticipate the Holy Spirit to blow into our lives and to this church to empower us to bear witness of Jesus into the very ends of the earth? If I'm honest about my life with God, and this is your pastor being honest so that you can be honest later on in your small groups or whatnot, if I'm honest about my life with God, I don't know if I live in such a way that displays that I need the Holy Spirit. Intellectually, I need the Holy Spirit. I do. 
but when it comes to how I live, like just my lifestyle, do I live in such a way that demonstrates a desperate need for the Holy Spirit? So one of my questions is, whatever happened to the Holy Spirit, I think God might go, I'm here. <laughs> I'm here. Do you need me? Do you anticipate me to direct and empower you? Just as I read in Acts, I mean, how would I live differently if I expected the catalytic character of the Holy Spirit to be active in my life? I think two characteristics would be standing out in my life and in our life together. First, I would live with so much more dependence. Friends, God did not expect for the, the movement of the church to happen without the Holy Spirit. It was never God's intention. In the same way, you are not expected to be walking through this world, being a, a, a bearer of, of a witness into Jesus' kingdom without depending upon the Holy Spirit. Perhaps what we need to do is what exactly happened at that first day of Pentecost. We need to learn to wait for the Holy Spirit. Perhaps we need to wait to be empowered for us to faithfully go into this world. That's why I really love the line in the creed that we just said, that with a healthy awareness of our own bias, we vow to form our beliefs on the counsel of Scripture, a dependence on the Holy, upon the Holy Spirit, and most importantly, in following the way of Christ. Why? We can't go forward without the Holy Spirit's empowering work in us. For us to faithfully live into the tradition that we've been given, we must live with a greater dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit will teach us how to be faithful. Now, we can idealize the early church of like, it was such a, a beautiful expression, a pure expression. But if you were to read the New Testament, you would know that the, the New Testament church, the early church, had tons of drama, tons of conflict. That's why you read a letter and Paul, who wrote most of the letters, is often cranky and disappointed. Why? Because they were missing it. They were struggling. Over and over again, the church was trying to figure out what does it mean to love Jesus, and they just kept fighting. Being a fellowship of different kinds of people is hard work. For example, I love this example, so if you guys are interested in this, do a deep dive here. But in Romans chapter 14, there was a great fight in the early church of, in Rome because certain Jewish Christians wanted these non-Jewish Christians to change the way they lived in primarily two different ways. What they ate and if they could observe the religious holidays. Now, you and I would think, that's pretty small, like what we eat and what holidays we celebrate, kind of small, you know, small beans, uh, but they couldn't eat beans. Um, but they, they really cared deeply about that because for generations and generations, that's like what it meant to be Jewish. And so they were fighting about it, and then Paul writes on this letter, and he says this. He says, except one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. That phrase, disputable matters, has stood out to me. Because what are disputable matters? Those are the issues that we can agree to disagree while maintaining our unity. Those are the issues that we look at, we go, those issues aren't core. We can disagree without being like breaking our fellowship or unity. For me, that sounds like a third way posture of finding things that are disputable and holding tension within the community for us. So then the million-dollar question is what? What's disputable and what's not? That's the question I've had from several of you in the last couple of weeks as we've gone through this series. 
And it's, there's, it's a lot of nuance to it. So there are several of you that said, all right, so this whole third way is great, but don't we have some things that we are pretty core and essential? And what are they? So on one end of the spectrum, there are some people, more beloved people in our community who, who say, like, aren't there certain truths and beliefs that are core that we can't just, just shrug our shoulders at and go, oh, who cares? You know, there's room for you at the table, right? Like, aren't there certain core beliefs that we have that are non-disputable? And the answer is yes. We actually have, like, a, a statement of belief for our church. It's on our website. But what you'll notice is it's pretty pared down. It's pretty simple. Why? Because when it comes to disputable matters, it really is on what we think what we consider our life with God to be about. Yes, we have certain core beliefs that are essential, as we believe, essential to a Christian, as someone who's following Jesus. Meanwhile, on the other side of the spectrum are other beloved brothers and sisters who would say, aren't there certain things in how we treat people that are like, we just can't stand in our church, like that are outside the bounds of what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Like certain things around compassion and justice, I mean, I saw a friend of mine who's a pastor here uh, in this area. Uh, she uh, posted something, and I was like, did you just recently listen to my sermon? Because it kind of felt like it was taking me to task. My friend Aurelia, she shared this. She said, just a friendly reminder, God takes sides. God sides with the marginalized, with the oppressed, the poor. God takes their side every time. Takes sides with radical love, or takes sides with radical love, with liberation work, with heaven on earth, take sides with healing, with spirit movement, take sides with listening, with rolling up your sleeves, with using your hands and feet, because if God is our guide, then sometimes spiritual work looks like choosing sides. So good, right? So true. So Mark, what is it? And when does Aurelius, Aurelius church meet? Because I think I might be in, right? <laughs> I want us to remember that out of all the different descriptions that Jesus could have. I love how John's gospel begins by saying that Jesus came to us full of grace and truth. For Jesus, he didn't sacrifice grace and loyalty to truth. And likewise, he didn't shrug off truth on the slippery slope, riding down to grace with nothing at the core. Truth compelled him towards grace. And Jesus knew for us to figure out what is essential, what is core, that we would need our help. So right before he left, guess what he said? He said, don't worry. I'm not going to leave you alone to figure all this out. I'm going to give you something, a concordance, a concordance that will tell you where all truth resides. No, this is what he said. That was a pastory joke that no one thought was funny. <laughs> Fine, I get it. All right. No, instead of offering a concordance, what did uh, Jesus promise to give us? The Spirit. The Spirit will be like an advocate, and the Spirit will teach you, this is Jesus' words, the Spirit will teach you all things. Friends, we need to depend upon the Holy Spirit because that was God's design to lead us, to guide us, not only into knowing what disputable matters are, but also we need to depend on the Holy Spirit to provide us Wisdom and how to have unity in our differences. We need a greater dependence on the Holy Spirit. The second thing we must learn to live with is a greater attentiveness to the Spirit. When I think about the early church, it makes me think of the Wild West without a game plan, without a roadmap, 
they were just living this out and they had to watch how the Holy Spirit was at work in their, in their midst. There's some people who love the black and white of this world, who like having a rule book. And for them, I'm sure this would have been really, really disorienting, maybe anxiety producing. Other people, you love the gray, and that sounds so fun and exciting. Good for you. But for the early church, they had to learn to be attentive to the Holy Spirit. What is God doing in our midst? How is the Holy Spirit inviting me to step into, maybe into the mess or towards other people? This is difficult for some because many of us grew up in kind of a form of church, evangelicalism church, where we were taught to distrust our experiences. We were taught like to, to like actually doubt us being able to perceive God's work in our world, in my heart, in my relationships. Why? Because we were taught that our hearts were wicked. We were taught maybe that we weren't to be trusted because it's so easy for us to fool ourselves, which is true. But the problem with that type of thinking is that God comes to us in this, in this thing called life and through your experiences in life. And instead of just shutting that down, we have to learn to be more attentive to the Spirit's work in our midst. We believe as a, as a church that the Spirit didn't bow out thousands of years ago when the church was born. God is still active and alive at work in this world, and God doesn't only want to show up in your quiet time or in your prayer closet. The Spirit wants to direct your steps, to show up in the faces of the hungry and needy. The Spirit wants to move you into moments into your life that are un unexpected and unscripted. And to live in that kind of way, we need to learn to pay attention, to be attentive to the Holy Spirit. That's at work in our life. That's leading us today. And to be frank, many of us, we've been taught that we don't need to be attentive to the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we have other things that teach us what to do. We have the Bible, we have pastors, we have podcasts, we have teachers. They can tell us how to live. We don't have to discern the Spirit's work. We can just follow them or follow that. When we live like that, we have learned to live in the first Pentecost and not the second. We have learned what it means to celebrate when Moses came down with the law and we devalue the second Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and fell on God's people to direct them, to advocate what they should be doing, how they should live. The Holy Spirit leading and guiding the church. I'm not suggesting that we dismiss the Bible in place of our experiences but what I am proposing is this, that we allow the Holy Spirit to form our view of Scripture and reading of Scripture, and we learn to submit our lives to the Spirit's work in me and in us. So I would encourage you guys, if this is something that you're interested in, I would encourage you to read the book of Acts to see our legacy as a church. But as I looked over it, uh, recently, this is what I saw to be key components of the early church. These are the key components I see of the early church. That they, as a community, they focused upon Jesus' life and teachings. They radically included the outsider in ways that were really subversive to the norms of that day. They courageously lived out compassion, generosity, and sacrifice. They had a willingness to seek unity and diversity and they depended, and they had attentiveness upon the Holy Spirit. And I'm curious, 
if those describe us, if those describe your own life with God today. Which one are you attracted to? Which one do you wish, wish you could edit off the list? My point today is this, that these very characteristics that we see that mark the early church, in my point of view, are the very characteristics of what we hope to be as a church. We believe this, this third way community, that, this culture that we have, these are the markings of that as well. What we're hoping to pursue as a church around this third way culture, this distinctive around our church, is not some cute invention. It's not just like we're getting creative now. It's actually, for me, a returning to the legacy in which the church was born. But to live this out will be hard. It will be challenging. It's going to require a lot of us. Reminds me of a story of a parent who went on a hike with their two kids. Let's call the parent a mom because it's Mother's Day. So this mother took uh, her two kids on a hike, and they went often on this hike the same hike all the time. So they go and they check in at the Welcome Center. And at the Welcome Center, there's, you know, pictures of what took place there at that park. There is like a little coffee bar and, you know, park rangers walking around. They check in there and then the mom walks up with the two children. They go on this, they begin this hike. Then all of a sudden the mom stops where there's this little rope that says, advanced only. And there's this trail that they've never walked down before. And the mother looks at the children and go, I think y'all are ready to go where we haven't gone before. But it's going to require a lot. I need to know, like, do you want to do this? And one child immediately goes, yeah, I'm in, I'm in. And they say that because they're the second born and they're stupid and impulsive. And the first born goes, I don't know, can you describe what we're going to see, and the parent gets like, nope, it's an adventure. And as this child is processing it, they remember the Welcome Center, and they look at their mother and go, I think I'm going to meet you down at the Welcome Center. I'm just not up to it today. And the mom leans in and goes, are you sure? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Okay. And so the mother walks forward, and the second born skips along, distracted, because they forgot to take their ADHD medicine. And the firstborn goes back down to the welcome center. And when they get there, it's warm, it's comfortable, they have this awesome fake leather couch, plops down on that, drinks his sweet miss, right? The little hot cocoa, living large, loving it. And then all of a sudden begins to notice that the loops of the videos of the different parts of the park seem to be going faster and faster, gets a little stuffy. This child begins watching the door, waiting for the mother and the other child to come in, and waits and waits and waits. And then hours later, in walks in the mother and the child. They are completely dirty, lips are chapped, eyes are red. They are scruffed up from the experience. But when the child looks at the sibling, they know that they experience something. Something that hanging out in the Welcome Center, looking at the pictures and the videos, knew nothing about. Friends, I don't want to hang out in the Welcome Center when it comes to being church. I don't want to spend my days 
looking at the different pictures from the New Testament, from the life of Jesus, and go, that looks awesome. I don't want to find places of comfort and ease where it's protected and it's safe, where we get get to hang out with people that we want to hang out with. I want to know what it's like to hit the road, to be invited into something that feels scary, that's going to require a lot of us. I want to be a part of something that's going to require something of me that I know I don't have of myself. I think living in this tradition is us going on this journey together. And life is too short to hang out in the welcome sitter of religion. So I want to invite you to join me in this adventure. Join me in, in following Jesus in this difficult road because I believe there's something that we can experience face-to-face by doing that. So Holy Spirit, we ask for your help. We need you to be able to live into this. And I pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds to the reality that you are alive, that you're active, that you long to lead us and guide us. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about the vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to the Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.